Independent talk. Proper talk. News talk. Talk radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. With the self-appointed revolutionary of reason, Mike Graham. On talk radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here at the home of Common Sense. It is, of course, Talk Radio, the place where we don't throw people under the bus, where we don't send out anyone with a suitcase to bring back bottles of wine, and where we don't only do a show when things are looking a little bit on the rough old side. That's right, we are not in Downing Street, where the rather laughably named Operation Save Big Dog appears to be in full flow. That's right, uh, the heart of government is now consumed with people diving for cover, trying to blame each other and inventing new policies to try and take everyone's mind off it. I mean, can you imagine what it's like walking around in Downing Street? You turn a corner, you see somebody you don't want to see, you duck down into the uh, room downstairs or you run down the back stairs or you hide in a cupboard, you get out of the way. Everybody's pointing the finger at everybody else. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to see COVID restrictions disappearing, illegal migrants being sent back to France and a full attack on the BBC. It's amazing what you can do when you have a bit of motivation, isn't it, Prime Minister? Meanwhile, Sir Keir Starmer is being told to apologise for being caught drinking with colleagues during lockdown last April. But perhaps he'd be better off explaining what he's going to do about Labour MP Barry Gardner getting half a million quid from a Chinese spy. He's got a very big house, Barry Gardner. Have you seen it? Looks bigger than Buckingham Palace, for heaven's sake. There is much to unpick since last week, and we are seeking the help this morning of John Rental to tell us where it's all going, and where possibly where it's all going wrong, and when it's all going. 0344 499 Over in La La Land, Prince Harry's throwing another tantrum, desperately trying to prove he's still relevant by threatening to sue the government, just so that he can have bodyguards provided for himself and the Queen of Woke. But Herbert actually thinks he's entitled to it, despite leaving the royal family, and claiming that he wants a quiet life, in California. The Queen has already indicated she's not interested in helping him, and Piers Morgan has called him a shameless, deluded hypocrite. Can't actually argue with that, really, can you? Angela Levin will explain. She's already had some words with his lawyers, uh, who apparently didn't like one of the tweets she put out yesterday. 0344 499 1000. Peter Hitchens is here too, uh, why, with, uh, wondering why everyone is so upset about Partygate when they weren't bothered about being told to lock themselves down for months on end. Like most of us, he's wary of what the next few weeks have in store. But will the new alcohol-free Prime Minister now get everything back to normal sooner than we thought? We'll also be checking in with Simon Calder for the latest on the travel front. And we're also joined by Rebecca Ryan from Defund the BBC after a day of bleating and whining from almost everyone that works for them, telling us all how valuable it all is. And it only costs 43 pence a day. But if you don't pay, you're going to jail. Heaven help us. 0344 499 1000. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest great radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let us, without further ado, say a very good morning to Mr. John Rental. John, how are you? Good morning, Mark. I'm very well, thank you. Now, if only we knew this was how to make Boris Johnson act like a proper Conservative, we could have thrown more parties much earlier, because apparently <laughs> now he's going to go back to basics, as it were. Uh, he's going to start throwing out migrants. He's going to stop them from coming, sending them all back to France. He's defunding the BBC all over the place. I mean, heaven, heaven knows where, where we might end up. Well, I'm not sure he's going to do any of those things. I mean, <laughs> really? Calling in the military is not going to solve uh, solve the problem of small boats in the in the channel. I mean, that's not it. That is not a logistical problem. No, I thought um, they were busy driving HGV lorries around anyway. Well, exactly. And, you know, if, if you deploy the military to uh, to patrol uh, the beaches, all they will do is the same as the border force and the Coast Guard, which is uh, which is stop people from drowning and deliver them to the. Uh, to the processing centres in, in yeah. Brighton. I mean, in fact, if anything, it might make their journey even quicker. <laughs> well, yes, it might be might be slightly more efficient. <laughs> um, 
but and and you know attacking the BBC is uh, you know that will that might impress a few conservative backbenchers, but I, I doubt if it any conservative backbencher who who thinks that Boris Johnson uh, ought to go. Uh, is unlikely to be persuaded by a, a cheap attack on the BBC. No, I mean, this has been going on for yeah. a long time. I mean, I remember working at Daily Express when, when they used to occasionally turn uh, at the behest of central office on the BBC, um, and uh, and it never really went anywhere, and nothing really ever changed. Well, except the BBC will be short of money, but, I mean, that was probably going to happen. Well, that's their own fault, though. I mean, anyway. it's not like they haven't got it. It's a bit like the NHS being short of money, you know. But we've only given you 45 billion gazillion pounds. What have you done <laughs> with it? Well, we gave it all to Dan Walker. Well, exactly. I mean, yeah, public, the public will be on, on the government side on that one. Uh, pub, the public don't like paying uh, the licence fee and they don't like paying uh, increases in the licence fee, no. but they do like the BBC. Well, they uh, like bits of it, I think. I mean, it's, uh, increasingly, they don't like all of it. And there's an awful lot of people that don't like any of it. Well, I, yeah, but they don't have to watch it and they don't have to pay the licence fee. So... Um, that's, that's well, yeah, but the trouble think... is there's, there's a couple of little niceties there, aren't there? Because if you want to watch any live television, you have to pay the licence fee. Uh, yeah, well, OK. Um, but most, you know, if, if you really don't want to watch the BBC, you don't have to. And you don't have to pay for it. No, but if you want to watch but, ITV, no, I... you have to pay the BBC to do so, which kind of seems like a bit of an anomaly, doesn't it? It, it, it does seem like an anomaly, but it's, it's one that has existed for a very long time. And I think most people have got used to it. Well, so that's what they said about slavery. <laughs> You can't use that argument on this show, John. Yes, you can. It's you been can. there for a long time and it's very you, good indeed. You can argue. A bit like, you know, no women in the long room at Lords, no, that sort of thing. No, I, I would compare the BBC not to slavery, but to democracy. I think it's the, it's the worst way of running, uh, uh, running a public service broadcaster than, than any other way of, uh, of doing it. And uh, I think people have got used to that. People well, do I mean, like I, did, I did enjoy yesterday all the people who were paid very well by the BBC telling us all uh, on social media how great it all was and how much poorer we'd all be without it. I pointed, out to, I, pointed out, I pointed out to Dan Walker that he would be £300,000 poorer uh, if we didn't have the BBC. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, clearly the BBC needs to do some of its own PR. It does. It really does. Uh, but it's, uh, and the high salaries are a bit of a problem. But I do not think that uh, attacking the BBC is the answer to... Uh, no, but I mean, this Operation Save Big Dog thing, I mean, you would literally think it would come straight out of the thick of it, wouldn't you? I mean, one, <laughs> calling yourself a big dog in the first place would suggest that you're really not a big dog. Um, and then trying to make out that it's going to be everybody else's fault, because it's increasingly looking, is it not, that this grey report is going to basically throw every civil servant under the bus and Boris is going to be in the clear. Well, except it's not, is he? Because I don't think that is going to satisfy public opinion. I mean, I think what, what's changed my mind over the past week has been the, the way that public opinion has turned against the Prime Minister. Yeah. I mean, people, people who thought that Boris Johnson was, was good fun, uh, that he was entertaining, and that his sort of chaotic way of approaching politics was the right way to get Brexit done, uh, and bending the rules and uh, proroguing Parliament and all the rest of it was, was a good way of bulldozing uh, Brexit through getting the election yes. won. Uh, all those qualities have have now been uh, have now turned sour, mm. uh, and I think people have uh, decided he's completely yeah. the wrong and person. And I think and I think to be fair, because we'd had that long period of sort of stalemate, uh, which you and I witnessed firsthand. I, I always tell people the story of when you sat down once in the tent, and I turned to you and I said, "To be honest, John, I don't know what to ask you today because we've we've sort of done everything. I can't think of where <laughs> we go now." And I think after that period of of absolute inactivity and and kind of, you know, bulldozer-free zones, and you couldn't get anything done. Well, they even yeah. met on a Saturday and still couldn't get anything done. I think that was kind of 
people were relieved in a way. They didn't really care how he got it done. And when he did get it done, it was great. Exactly. But his but the same qualities that allowed him to get it done uh, and to win that election, deliver that majority for the for the Conservative Party are the qualities that, that people now hate him for. Yes. Uh, the fact that he doesn't doesn't seem to think the rules that apply to everybody else apply to him. Mm. Uh, and I think that is is close to irrecoverable. I mean, I just think... No, I, I think you're right. And I mean, I'm saying the same thing. I mean, I was under the impression that if there was another big sort of leak that appeared on one of the papers on Sunday, he would be gone by Sunday. That didn't happen. Yeah. But doesn't mean to say it won't happen. Doesn't mean to say that somebody's not waiting until the report comes out and then whammo, uh, there's another picture of uh, Boris drinking champagne with his with his wife. Yeah. No, I think... I think um, the Conservative Party and Conservative MPs have decided that they've uh, they've had enough of them. I mean, it's astonishing ingratitude mm. uh, for delivering them uh, an 80 seat majority just two years ago. Uh, but then um, politics is like that. But it is like that. And also it's quite astonishing, is it not, how quickly he has kind of kiboshed his own legacy? Because this is a guy yeah. who, um, I mean, obviously, you know, before COVID happened in the in the aftermath immediately of January, I guess, 2020. You know, he was a guy who, who had the world at his feet. You know, he could do yeah. pretty much anything he wanted. He had 80 seat majority. He had the ability to uh, stick two fingers up to the European Union. He could have done anything he wanted in, in Northern Ireland. He could have yeah. pushed any sort of policy through. Covid came along, and you know you can't really blame him for for not quite knowing exactly how to handle it. But certainly, what has appeared to be the case is that the whole of Downing Street, the whole of the government, hasn't been taking it as seriously as they wanted us to. No, that's, and and that is the problem. I mean, actually, yeah, you're right. The voters were prepared to give him the benefit of the doubt on on coronavirus. Mm. They, you know, he possibly wasn't the best sort of prime minister to deal with a really complicated public health crisis of that kind and yet he did deliver the vaccine uh the vaccine rollout which people were very grateful for but there's this there's this overwhelming sense that uh, he was asking us to do things uh, that he wasn't prepared to do himself uh, and the government were just taking the voters for fools and i think that that is absolutely corrosive mm. uh, and that's done for him and, and i think it's just a matter of time now before the, the, the Tory party decides uh, to put Rishi yes. Sunak instead. And is your sense that they're waiting for the report first and then and then that's when things will well, start happening? No, my sense is that, I mean, the Conservative Party is is, is prone to panic. I think they're in a state of, uh, of, of, of absolute panic at the moment. They don't know what to do. Uh, they don't know. Either. It just seems so ridiculous to be trying to get rid of a prime minister at, at this stage. Uh, and yet, in their heart of hearts, they know that he's got to go. Mm. Uh, and so they're just working out how how it's going to happen uh, and when to send in the, the the letters to Sir Graham Brady. Yes. And you know, is Rishi Sunak really really the answer to their prayers? But I mean, I think I think he probably is. I think they stand a much better chance in the next election uh, with uh, Rishi Sunak in charge. And uh, I think that will. Uh, that logic will play itself out somehow over the next uh, next few months. I mean, the fact that some people are actually harking back to the days of Theresa May and saying, well, at least she was properly well organised and she might have been a bit dull and she might have not been able to get Brexit done, but at least in domestic policy, <laughs> you know, it wasn't sort of all over the place. It wasn't the old shopping trolley scenario that Dominic Cummings talked about. Who's harking back to Theresa May? Oh, <laughs> I've heard loads of people say that we, we'd be better off having Theresa May back than having Boris. Yeah, have you not heard that? No, I really, I really you haven't. Really, well, you really got to get out more. I think that I think the the problem that a lot of Tory MPs have is that they're not sure about uh, they're not sure about Rishi Sunak. I mean, the hundred and one Conservative MPs who rebelled against the government over the Plan B restriction before Christmas, um, a, a, a lot of them are calculating that you know Boris Johnson may be 
may, may be shocked, but he is their best chance of avoiding further coronavirus restrictions because he is at least um, a, a liberal on that. And they're not sure about Rishi Sunak. I mean, Rishi Sunak's been on the right side of that debate as far as they're concerned. But, you know, their best bet is to stick with Boris for the moment. And I think that's uh, that's the, the only thing that's keeping the... And the other worry I think they've got is that Rishi Sunak at the moment, rightly or wrongly, is the guy that's getting the blame for wanting to put taxes up. And unless yeah. he refu- re- reverses all of that and says, actually, I was told to do that by the last prime minister. Now I'm not going to do it. Uh, that would be great. No, he's not. He's not going to do that. That was that was that was his decision. And it was the right decision. It was the, it was the responsible decision. Well, I'm glad you're looking forward to supplying even more money to the wine department of Downing Street, uh, which they can spend liberally pretending that they're going to save the NHS. I'm not. No, looking forward I'm, to it. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, to, to taking the responsible decisions to save the NHS. I mean, the NHS, the NHS can't be saved. It's already dead and buried. It's time to revamp it, reform it and make it into something that actually works. People have been trying to save it for years, John. Any, any attempt to, to completely reorganize the NHS would be an utter disaster would cost far more than, uh, than just trying to patch it. Why do people always say that though? I mean, you know, as well as I do and listening to the people that ring my show to tell me how hopeless it is and how badly treated they have been, you know, that large portions of it have not worked for years. Yeah, no, but the question is, how do you get from, from here to, to, to there, there being a, yeah, but you can't go through life saying, Oh, it's too hard. We better not bother. Didn't well, you? you can actually, especially if the British public regard the NHS as as the national religion. Yeah, but, they, yeah, but, going... yeah but some people do. But mostly those, it's a bit like the BBC. It's all the people that work in it that go, isn't it great? Let's pray for our heroes, you know, the same right. heroes that actually won't see you uh, because you might have COVID, despite the fact that it's supposed I, to be a health I, service. I do not think that any politician who uh, who stands on a platform of, uh, of, of revamping the NHS and trying to ch- change it to a French or German or Dutch system uh, it's going to get get very fast. But so that's the problem. You're with, looking at it from a political perspective. And when ordinary yeah. people can't get an operation or they get told you're going to have to wait five years for somebody to look at your knee, you know, that's pathetic and hopeless. And somebody, yes, needs, to, somebody needs to fix it. No, but the, the problem is the last Labour government did did more or less fix it. By 2010, the NHS was actually in, in, in pretty good shape. If we could get back to that, I think most people would be happy. I don't remember it being any better then than it is now, to be honest. Well, no, it was far. It was far better. Wait, well, waiting lists were were more or less uh, more or less abolished. I'm well, there's a lot more people here now. In eleven years later, yeah, but so it can be done. Is is my point? Right. I mean, in principle, so so, it can be done. so why won't they do it? Well, because that's what they are doing. They they are finally, rather belatedly, following the new Labour um, prescription, which is to uh, which is to spend more money on it and and reform it. Amazing. And uh, th- that involves raising taxes, unfortunately. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm sick of it. I think I'm going to move, actually. I think I'm going to emigrate to another country uh, where I don't have to prop up the BBC and the NHS. But stay where you are, John. We've got more to talk about. This is, of course, the Independent Republican Mike Graham. We want to take your calls this morning as well, uh, because at the end of the day, Boris Johnson is probably going to be out of a job relatively soon. We need to talk to you about that, because you might say, well, hang on a minute, if he's hanging around this long... Is he still going to be there next week and the week after and the week after that? What on earth is he going to be doing? 0344 499 1000 is the number. This is Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. You know what to do. We need to hear from you. I mean, I'm not sure uh, what Boris Johnson is going to do to stay in his job. But if it means, for example, uh, that he's going to stop the migrant crisis, uh, that he's going to stop uh, a tax rise uh, paying for the NHS and putting yet more money uh, into the uh, bottomless pit that is the health service of this country, uh, if he is, in fact, going to have a go at the BBC, defund it, say to people you won't be having to pay a licence fee in the future at some point or other, some people might say, well, finally, Boris Johnson's doing what we elected him to actually do. We're talking to John Rental. He doesn't think any of that's going to happen. Uh, he thinks it's all a bit of a, uh, a tactic to sort of divert everybody's attention from all the parties and all the behaviour that's been going on inside of Downing Street. Um, but the other question I've got, John, if he does follow through with this kind of um, idea that at some point or other, some civil servants will all be fired as a result of what they may or may not have been up to without his knowledge or with his knowledge. Surely that's just creating more people outside the tent with a load more pictures of a load more parties, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that's that's not going to help at all. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't think public opinion is going to be uh, satisfied by that. I mean, it, it's because he he personally doesn't seem to think the rules apply to him, that the prime minister is in such trouble and mm. uh, sacking some some juniors. Uh, is not actually it's not actually going to help i mean you know he can he can say well you know i've i've revamped my office i've i've reset my operation but these these things never work in politics mm. people have people have made up their mind about what they think of of the prime minister and the only way to move on from that is is to come up with policies that people like as yeah. you say right. and uh, there's a problem with every single thing that they've come up with is either not going to work it's it's not possible or it's not popular Exactly right. And also, once you're in this position that he finds himself in now, his authority's sort of gone, hasn't it? Because if yeah. you're even American, although the cabinet are supposedly being relatively loyal for the moment, I don't think there's going to be too many people willing to do his bidding, as it were. No, I mean, well, the cabinet has been stunningly lukewarm in its uh, support <laughs> for him. Uh, and, you know, obviously, ministers will come out and, and trot out some lines uh, on, on the media. Uh, because they're because they're professionals and they regard it as a sort of insult to their their ability to do the job. They can't uh, they can't do it. So so they go out and they and they say things. But they you know everybody knows that they they know uh, that this is just staving off the inevitable inevitable moment. And yeah. uh, the only question is is how that is going to come about. I mean how how do we get to the fifty four uh, letters and when when does that happen? Because I mean, in many ways, you know, Rishi Sunak might, might not want to take over quite yet. I mean, there's there's a good argument for letting uh, letting Boris Johnson absorb some more of the flack for mm. several more months. Yes, I mean, t- is it is it in your mind that he'll carry on until the May elections, and if that goes terribly badly wrong, that will be the moment. Well, that sounds like a I mean, that sounds like a plan which uh, to panicky Tory MPs might. Uh, uh, might have some credibility. But the, the thing about the, the 54 letters, of course, is that nobody knows. It's all a guessing game mm. about what other people are doing. And nobody knows when the tripwire is, is finally going to be tripped. Right. And when uh, Sir Graham Brady is suddenly going to pop out of, uh, of, of the Palace of Westminster and hold an impromptu press conference saying he's got the, he's got the letters. Right. I mean, there is an awful lot, of, I'm afraid, of lily-livered behaviour going on here, isn't there? Because you've still got people coming out. I heard Peter Bone what, defending... What, in politics? Lily-livered I know. It's astonishing, isn't it? I mean, I, I mean, I'm not surprised, I must say, John, by this, but, but the Daily Mail on this day of all days decides to go uh, with Ian Duncan Smith calling for Sir Keir Starmer to apologise uh, for going <laughs> for a couple of beers with some of his mates... Which, to be fair, isn't really the same thing. He's, and he said that, hasn't he? Well, yeah. I, I mean, Keir Starmer had some difficulty with that in his interview yesterday, which I thought was unwise. 
but obviously, if he hadn't done that interview, then the BBC would have uh, accused him of running away. So yeah. he was he was caught between uh, two undesirable uh, options. Uh, but he didn't. I mean, his explanation was exactly the same as the prime minister's explanation. It was a it was a work meeting, right. uh, which is which is difficult. But in the end. Keir Starmer isn't prime minister, and and, Boris and he Johnson wasn't. And well, that's the thing, and and he wasn't making the rules. I mean, you know me; I'm no defender of Sir Keir Starmer by any stretch of the imagination. But also, his work meeting appears to have been uh, with one or two people, whereas Boris Johnson's work meeting appears to be in a garden with a lot of trestle tables. And we're told over the weekend that he was told it was a bad idea and it should be cancelled. Yeah, except he de- he denies that he was told it was a bad idea. Well, so he would, it, wouldn't he? I mean, very... he, he denies <laughs> even. I mean, up until Wednesday, well, no, he couldn't even he could remember say... if he was there. No, but he could say, uh, I was told it was a bad idea and I disagreed because I thought it was an important important work event because I had to thank the, the people who'd been working for me incredibly hard over the uh, the previous period. What, you mean in um, a work meeting? Why couldn't you have just done it inside then? Yeah, but, it, well, I mean, legally for work, you know, you could make the argument that it was a gathering necessary for work purposes. But uh, he's already I'm, now said that it shouldn't have happened and if, what he should have done was go outside and tell them all to go back inside. That's what he's yeah. now said. Absolutely. The great thing about Boris Johnson, John, as you know, probably better than me, is that if you can deny something, you deny it. If yeah. you get caught out denying it and everyone's going to say that's not true, you don't deny it. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that and I think that's his problem is that is that the voters have, have felt that he uh, he tried to deny it and he tried to try to deny that anything had happened and then, then was caught out. Um, and they feel that he's uh, he's taken them for fools, and I think that is th- that's what lies behind an awful lot of the anger. Well, that's the thing. There's an awful lot of people, for example, who uh, in the media uh, as well started to, uh, to to sort of support the government's policies and say, well, you must go uh, into lockdown. This is what people want because it'll keep people safe. I mean, now everyone who did that looks like an absolute idiot because yeah. the government didn't even believe it. And I think that's the problem, and that's um, th- that's what Dominic Lawson said yesterday is that the, the, you know, the prime minister didn't believe his own his own rules right uh, and that, that makes it worse that he was he was asking other people to obey rules that he he himself thought were ridiculous yeah and the uh, bigger that, and the bigger question john is that if they thought those rules were ridiculous and they weren't necessary then what did they actually think about the covid pandemic and the the danger well, of people mixing because in the end that question will have to be asked as well once the inquiry finally becomes um a thing because an awful yeah. lot of people lost an awful lot of money an awful lot of people weren't able to get medical care. You know, there was an awful lot of collateral damage caused by the lockdowns. And if they weren't no. adhering to them, then they clearly didn't think there was any point. No, that's right. And, um, you know, the extraordinary thing now is that the public inquiry is probably going to happen after Boris Johnson has ceased to be prime minister. So I don't know if anybody's going to be very interested in its findings. Yeah, absolutely right. And as far as the final question, I suppose, John, um, is there more to come out? as far as you're aware, this week, and, and how's this week going to go? Because there's going to be Prime Minister's questions presumably on Wednesday. Uh, whoever is um, um, behind all of these leaks presumably has still got some stuff in the locker. Well, a lot of different people. No, I mean, this idea that people sort of hoard information and sort of feed it out in, in bit, bit by bit in order to do the maximum damage, that's not how this, this stuff works. Uh, it's, it's more a process of seepage than leakage. Yeah. Uh, you know, and and it's to, and 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 your point is absolutely right. That if if Boris Johnson seems to be blaming his underlings, then his underlings are not going to be happy about it. And mm. they, they're going to they're going to leak stuff that they've uh, that they've so far loyally kept under wraps. Mm. Uh, and that's that's explains a lot of what's been happening. Is that the civil service feel that they've been uh, they've been dumped on? 
uh, and so uh, so they've become much more much more talkative. Whereas you know, I mean, a lot of these things happened eighteen months ago, yeah. a long time ago, and enough and absolutely there wasn't a whisper of about them for a very long time. Uh, but uh, once the dam broke, um, there's there always seems to be more to come. Yeah. Well, there's an awful, awful lot of people working in Downing Street who seem to have awfully big memories on their phones that they can keep all this stuff for such a long time. But anyway, uh, we shall see. John, thank you very much indeed. John Rental, uh, Chief Political Commentator for The Independent. Um, he, like me, thinks that Boris Johnson's a goner. question is when. And so, in between then and now, what happens? Do we listen to anything that he says? Is there any point in him trying to convince us that he's going to change the way that Britain works or that he's going to change some policies to make himself more popular? I don't think there is. Do you? It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. As ever, we need to hear from you, of course, because you are the eyes and ears uh, of the Independent Republic. You tell us what you're seeing, what you're hearing, uh, and of course, we tell everybody else. It seems to me uh, that COVID has all but been forgotten. There was a great piece at the weekend, and we hope to speak to Fraser Nelson maybe later in the week in The Spectator, uh, in which they compared the sage warnings with what actually happened. How many people actually ended up going to hospital as opposed to the people that were told uh, were going to go to hospital? How many people actually died uh, as opposed to the sage predictions of thousands and thousands of people dying. 75,000 people were going to die of Omicron, according to them. Uh, so we're going to get into all of that. But it looks to me as though life is beginning to return to normal. It's not normal for everyone, and I get that, but I want to hear what it's like where you are. 03444991000. Also, don't forget, you can watch us as well as listening to us. Apple TV, Rakuten, Samsung TV+, Plus, Roku, YouTube. We're now on Amazon Fire as well. All you're going to do is go to talkradio.tv or download the Talk Radio TV app from the App Store. Uh, now, we're going to talk to Andrew Levin in a moment, royal commentator and biographer, author, of course, of Harry, uh, a biography of a prince. Well, I sometimes refer to Harry now as the Herbert formerly known as Prince, because he really is making himself out to be a complete and utter numpty. The latest outburst from uh, Montecito Towers uh, is Prince Harry saying, 
I'd like to have some bodyguards, please. I don't want to pay for them because I'm loaded, absolutely loaded. I've got more money than Croesus. I don't know what to do with it. I can't even spend it that fast on Louboutin shoes for my beautiful wife, um, Woko Ono, as some people call it. The point about Harry, right, is that he thinks he wants to leave the royal family, but now he wants to be treated as though he's somebody in the royal family. He doesn't get bodyguard protection from the Queen uh, or from the Metropolitan Police while he's living in California. Why should he, you might say? He's just another two-bit celeb now, isn't he? But he reckons now when he comes back to this country, his life is in danger. So he needs protection. Well, I don't think he does need protection. If he does want to hire a few bodyguards, I'm sure we can put him in touch with Will Geddes and Will will be able to sort him out quite pronto and sharpish. We'll talk to Will about this later on in the week. But as of right now, Prince Harry is being told by the Queen, no, you're not getting any bodyguards from the Metropolitan Police. You're not going to be treated like Andrew is treated. You're not going to be treated like Charles or like William uh, or like Kate because you have decided unilaterally to leave the royal family. Piers Morgan's uh, got a column in The Sun this morning uh, in which he calls Prince Harry a shameless, deluded, woefully entitled hypocrite. Right? I don't think you can disagree with a single word of that. Can you? I mean, Prince Harry, I think the words do one come to mind. Let's talk to Angela Levin. Angela, very good morning to you. Good morning. Good Sorry, morning. Uh, I just thought I'd go off on an, on one there just before we spoke. Right. Now, um, yes, before we get into the meat and drink of this particular latest outburst from uh, Prince Harry, what was all the uh, legal action about yesterday? It seemed like you were getting harassed by some um, uh, some lawyers. What was oh, all that yes. about? Well, I, I sent a tweet which said that um, Harry and Meghan are... So always saying you must be compassionate for those you know and those you don't know. Oh, yeah. And I said I didn't think they were being very compassionate to Harry's grandmother, age 95, who's just lost her husband. No. And an hour later, I got a text from lawyers in uh, lawyers in Germany who run the Twitter sort of legal side for Harry and Meghan to say there'd been a complaint about me and asked that I should be blocked from putting any more tweets. But actually, this uh, tweet that I did doesn't come into those areas where they should be blocked. Right. So I tweeted it again just to make Quite sure right. that I was all right. I must um, find it so that I can retweet it on your behalf. It's very, it's very interesting because it wasn't aggressive towards them. It was just very straightforward. And if we're not allowed even to do that, it's um, a ridiculous way because um, they're trying to be much too controlling. Well, the thing they is, we know what we know about about concern. the Prince Harry and Meghan is that they like to control the world around them, don't they? They like to have only nice things written about them, only pictures taken that they've approved, only you know words uh, in newspapers and magazines and in books that they have said uh, can be written about them because they don't want anything horrible written about them. And every time anybody does write something they don't like, they call racism or they call they call it cruel. You know, I mean, they're not going to enjoy Piers Morgan's column in the Sun today. No, they won't. No, absolutely not. I, I then tweeted another one, which I said that sometimes they like to be the victims and say that everybody's against them. And the rest of the time, they like to be very strong and um, tell everybody in the whole world what mm. to do. Um, that didn't get another one, but I'm, I'm quite surprised about that. I thought that was worse than yes. their first one, but... 
Um, but what I mean, this this, I mean, la- it, this, this latest request or, or or threat, if you like, because it's more of a threat, isn't it, to sue Her Majesty's government, which in fact is tantamount to suing his own grandmother, I presume, to try and get the right to have these bodyguards. It's so ridiculously um, pompous as to be laughable, isn't it? Well, there's a sort of naivety about it, actually, because there's nothing to do with Buckingham Palace. Mm. It's to do with um, a special body that is uh, part of the Home Office that investigates this. The point is that in 2020, when they decided to leave, the Queen, Prince Charles and and um, William told him that he would lose all all the security that he has had. Does he realise that? And they understood about feeling uh, nervous because he fought in Afghanistan. Um, but he didn't care about that. He was off. Well, you can't then just come back and suddenly say, well, I'd like Metropolitan Police of the top quality to be there for me, not just when I go and do a visit, but 24 hours, which is absolutely ridiculous. Mm. What he could have done quite quietly and which he could have easily found out was that there is a lot of retired Metropolitan Police who are thoroughly um, approved of by the country that you can use, but he's making a huge fuss And I can't imagine that he didn't know that. The other thing is that the country won't let in a team of um, protectors for him. They they turn up with guns. That's not going to be allowed. Harry wants them to know all about the MI5 and MI6 and what's going on. A very personal and important security for the country. Um, And he, he wants it... Well, now, yeah. it won't be allowed in palaces and he can't have it. He can't have it his own way. I also think that it's actually a form of blackmail because he's saying, I want my children to know the, fam- the country I belong to and to get to know everything about it. Um, but I can't bring them if um, I don't have all this proper security. Mm. Well, I think that's, that's a, a terrible thing to blackmail. And actually, those children are very small at the moment. Um, not to say that they shouldn't see their grandmother, great-grandmother, um, and, and everybody else. Mm. But you can't use that as an example. I think it's very low-grade. Very well, low-grade. Well, it is very low-grade, but it's typical uh, of what I would regard as the way that these two operate, because no doubt she's been you know, poking him and saying, you know, you've got to get us some bodyguards when we go back to the UK so we can be treated as though we are the biggest stars that anyone's ever seen. She'd probably quite like there to be a 14-car motorcade taking them up and down the street whenever they go anywhere because she obviously thinks that's how important she is. But they can't have it both ways. And also, they don't have that kind of Metropolitan Police bodyguard activity while they live in America, which seems to me to be a far more dangerous place than anywhere uh, that they could go in Britain. Well, there's a lot of murders where they live now, and which is quite interesting that that doesn't seem to worry him. We've seen photos of him riding a bike with nobody um, yeah. behind him. But I think I don't quite agree with you because I think Meghan absolutely doesn't want to come back. She didn't like the country. She hated the royal family. And she doesn't want to come back as the wife of number six in mm. the line for the right. throne. She wants to be number one in everything and she has to win. She, you can see the huge determination in this demand. And that's just not 
going to happen. So this is a wonderful excuse mm. why A, she can't come. And what we will have to see is whether Harry's brave enough to come on his own mm. um, next June when it's the uh, Platinum and Jubilee celebrations. Well, but, maybe he can um, come back like he did last time when he came back for the Diana statue and then he left, didn't he, immediately uh, before his grandmother's birthday, which I thought was awful. He said um, that he was followed by a load of paparazzi. And that's why he had to get out, because he didn't have the security. He had security what for Prince Philip's funeral because um, that they thought that that could be a hotspot for anybody who wanted to take revenge. But So he had that for that specifically, but not for unveiling his, his mother's statue. Um, I think they are all very mixed up about what they want. And I, what is very interesting is that the Harry I knew, you know, he had a bit of a, a hard side, but he was compassionate and funny and loved people. And now he just seems very, very vindictive and spiteful. Mm. Now, if you are really happy, you've got a wife you adore, you've got two children, you've got a huge home with all these 16 bathrooms, even if now you don't like it and you want to change it. Um, but how can you go on being so malicious? And particularly as he knows what the Queen suffered. He says he really likes her. He's very, he feels very strongly about her. And yet he's doing this because I suspect they've got to sort of win and they've got to bring the monarchy down. I think that's the basis of it all. Well, good luck with win. that. That's not going to happen. The other question, I suppose, that people do put up as a, as a counterpoint to this is, well, if Prince Harry doesn't get it, why does Prince Andrew get it? But there is a difference, isn't there? Uh, well, yes, Prince Andrew would love to stay within the royal family and would love to take part in any um, event that he possibly could. He had hoped that um, in the 40th anniversary of the Falklands War, uh, which is in April to June, mm. uh, that he could ease his way back. He wanted to go to the celebrations, but now he's not going to be allowed to. But um, there is discussion still about whether he deserved protection. But Harry and Meghan, well, Harry really, walked out. They didn't want to be part of the royal family anymore. They want to do absolutely what they want and earn loads of money using their royal yep. names. We have seen that time and time and time again. Right. Um, and that's very different from living in another country and doing that. But I suspect there will be some uh, changes in, in keeping Andrew safe. Mm. Well, I mean, it is a fascinating scenario, uh, one which I'm sure we'll be talking about an awful lot more. Angela, thank you very much indeed. Angela Levin, uh, author of Harry, a biography of a prince uh, or somebody who used to be a prince. I mean, he wants to still be called the Duke of Sussex. He still wants to have bodyguards uh, waiting on him hand and foot. He still wishes to be treated uh, like a member of the royal family, even though he clearly doesn't wish to be a member of the royal family. It's all a bit confusing, isn't it? I think it's right uh, that the Queen will not, in fact, help him out. I think it's right that the Metropolitan Police will not help him out. If he wants to get extra bodyguards, he can get them. Why he needs armed bodyguards, I've got absolutely no idea. Nobody else is allowed to have armed bodyguards. Why should he? This is Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
morning and welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here at the home of Common Sense. It is, of course, Talk Radio, the place where we don't throw people under the bus, where we don't send out anyone with a suitcase to bring back bottles of wine and where we don't only do a show when things are looking a bit rough on the outside. So we better sort of try and distract everybody with a few radio programmes because otherwise people might think there's something wrong. That's right, we are not in Downing Street where the rather laughably named Operation Save Big Dog appears to be in full flow. Yes, that's right, the heart of government is now consumed with people diving for cover, trying to blame each other, inventing new policies to try and take everyone's mind off it. We're waiting still uh, for the arrival of the investigation, the report, which is being done by the rather laughably named Head of Ethics at Downing Street, uh, who's going to apparently come out and blame everybody else apart from Boris Johnson, who didn't do anything wrong. Of course he didn't do anything wrong. I mean, why would he? You know, this is a man who doesn't care about rules. He doesn't think they apply to him. Uh, But of course, once he is exonerated, then that's when the fun really starts because he'll start firing people for doing something wrong and they'll all start releasing pictures of him at various parties and we'll go on and on and on and on. So instead of all that, what we're going to see is Boris Johnson talking about changing some policies. He's going to have a go at the BBC. Uh, He's going to be sending migrants back to France. He's going to be deciding uh, that actually maybe taxes shouldn't go up after all. He's going to try and make himself the most popular Conservative Prime Minister ever. Will he succeed? It seems highly unlikely, doesn't it? Coming up in this hour, we're going to talk to Peter Hitchens, who, of course, uh, has been saying all along that lockdowns were a terribly bad idea. Uh, He was one of the first to question government policy. He was one of the only people at the time when he was starting to do it uh, to say, are we sure about this? He's now saying this weekend in his column in the Mail on Sunday, by the way, it's only a party. Why are you getting so worked up about it? Surely you should have been a bit more worked up about being locked down for months on end. And I think he's probably right, isn't he? 0344 is the number. Coming up a little bit later on, uh, we'll have more of your calls as well. We're taking calls this morning, not just about Boris, not just about Sir Keir Starmer, but also about Harry uh, and whether he has the right to bodyguards. He says he wants to pay for them himself. But actually, what he's trying to do is make himself out to be some kind of extra special individual when he's really just a bit of a B-list celebrity, isn't he? 0344 499 1000. You'll listen to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, coming up, Time and Calder's going to be joining us as well because there's a few changes to one or two of the uh, travel restrictions. From Novak Djokovic, as you were just hearing there, uh, he can't really go anywhere at the moment. He's now going back to Serbia, we think, and whether he plays in another Grand Slam tournament is anybody's guess, really. But let's talk to Peter Hitchens, man on Sunday columnist, of course, a man we've been speaking to now for as long as the pandemic's been on, practically, it seems to me. Peter, very good morning to you. Good morning. I have to say, um, once again, I did agree with what you said at the weekend. I mean, as much as we're all having a great laugh outing various people at parties and breaking swings and, you know, carrying suitcases full of wine back from the local Tesco's, um, it is all not really the sort of thing we should be getting worked up about. Well, no, this is a problem. A lot of British politics in the past 20 or 30 years has, has actually degenerated into occasional human sacrifices. Instead of people looking at what's going on, saying this is wrong, uh, let's do something serious about it. Uh, we accept that the destruction of the uh, political career of a certain individual will be all right. Actually, oddly enough, it, 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 in the in the new Labour years, they often sacrifice the same human more than once. I seem to remember David Blunkett being driven from office uh, once, but I think Peter Mandelson was driven from office twice. Uh, these great frenzies, which you probably remember as vaguely as I do, yeah. had no effect whatsoever on the fact that the country was being governed by a, a bunch of Trotskyist radicals who destroyed the Constitution, broke up the Union, mired us in fantastic, colossal debt, 
and introduced mass immigration on a scale never previously seen in our history. Uh, but all people got worked up about was, was Peter Mandelson doing something about a, uh, a mortgage and, uh, and, and David Blunkett doing something about a passport. Yeah. This is what we do. We, 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 we don't actually pay any attention to politics, to what the government is doing. And we're, we're appeased by the occasional sacrifice of a cabinet minister, or if, if it's really good, of a prime minister. What difference does this make? Uh, the, the point that I make over this is uh, I think anybody who's has listened to me here or read anything I've ever said, knows that I'm not a defender of the current prime minister, uh, anything but. But if people think that getting rid of him over the holding of some cheese and wine parties in Downing Street is going to make anything better, they're much mistaken. What they'll probably get as a result of that is a government led by Sakir Starmer, which will be just as happy to close down the country and prevent people from, from seeing the, uh, their, their dying relatives as this all ever were, and, and it strikes me, if, if they were su subjected to the same examination and they had the same number of moles in their ranks as the government seems to have, it would very rapidly become apparent that they too are quite capable of holding parties during lockdowns. What is this about? Are we actually seriously concerned about making the country better, or, we, or do we just want to make ourselves feel better? And yes. over and over again, it's the latter that people choose. Well, that's why the country carries on getting worse. Sorry about that, guys. And do you think it's the fault of the media then, Peter, that this is the obsession that we currently have and that we are sort of led by the nose, as it were? Well, the, the, the media, are, the, the media is, is, to some extent, a form of show business, and it responds very much to a public desire and mood. This is the sort of politics I think the public wants and like. Uh, ultimately, I, I take all this back over and over again to so the destruction of serious education in this country uh, back in the middle 60s mm. and since then we have we, we've, we simply lack in any uh, of our trades or professions in any level of politics uh, the media the civil service the church judiciary the police anywhere we simply lack a layer of, of, of properly educated people prepared to study the case on its on its merits that we used to have and so we we slosh about like water in a bathtub from one mood and one and, and one vague but absolutely uh, firmly held prejudice to another, without ever halting to think, are we doing this right? And I just it, it, it just seems to me that it it, it does no good, mm. and that there is there is there remains in this country a, a a fair number of people who are still capable of thinking. But they're completely excluded from most decision-making processes. I, if, if any reform could be dreamt up which would put them closer to decision-making processes, I would support it. But in the meantime, I just wish people would not be carried away by these these frenzies. Mm. Every, everything is a frenzy, isn't it? Oh, yeah. We, but, I mean, it's, and, and it's normally, a very thoughtful consideration. And also, normally, it's a very short-lived frenzy. It's a sort of 24-hour yeah. or 48-hour frenzy at which some result is achieved, and then you sort of move on to the next one. And seemingly not, no, no one really considers anything that they say or do. Because there was a fascinating piece, I don't know if you saw it at the weekend in The Spectator, Michael Simmons wrote a piece, it was an update, in fact, um, Sage Scenarios versus Actual Scenarios, an update. And it basically was explaining how far out and how wrong the Sage predictions were before Christmas of what might happen if Omicron turned out to be dangerous and deadly and all the rest of it. Um, and I, the, the reason I think that this party story has taken hold is because it does ask a series of further questions, i.e. if they were not adhering to the rules, then clearly they didn't think the rules were very important, which then would follow that they didn't think the rules were actually necessary. So why the hell were they making everybody else do it? 
Well, that is always, has always been a point. Did the people who impose these rules on us ever really believe in them themselves? And it's plainly actions speak louder than words. But the other point you have to ask yourself is this, and I have a great coincidence theorist, as you know, I think everything's coincidence. Yeah. Uh, but the, one of the most astonishing coincidences of modern times is the fact that this particular series of parties uh, began to become public round about the time the Prime Minister recovered from his frenzy and began to question what the experts were telling him mm. and, uh, and declined to close down the country for Christmas. And at that point, suddenly we had great, great, great quantities of revelations about all these terrible parties that were taking place. So it's a fantastic coincidence, isn't it? Well, it is rather. But of course, unfortunately, although he didn't shut down Christmas, I was speaking to a couple of uh, restaurant owners who said they basically had their Christmases ruined. Thanks oh, to yeah. Chris Whitty telling people, well, we're not going to necessarily lock you down, but you basically shouldn't go out. Yes, but it, it's, it's, it's really, it, it's a case of being in between the crisis and the catastrophe, isn't it? If you're in between the crisis and the catastrophe, you, 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 uh, you're grateful to be only in a crisis. Yes. Uh, because the catastrophe would, would be worse. But again, if people had known about these, and presumably those people who, who knew about these parties and were prepared to talk about them have known about them since they took place, yeah. why is it that they've suddenly decided to tell the world about them now? Right. Well, that's a very good question. And why and wait, is it... if, they said, if they said it during the actual initial lockdown, these people are holding parties in Downing Street during lockdown. Now, now, that would have been an interesting revelation, but that didn't, it didn't seem to occur to them to say it then. Well, I mean, that's the other question you'd have to say, you would ask, would, it, would you not, of the people who covered Downing Street, the people who actually are supposedly charged with reporting on the business of government, who seemingly have missed the trick here. Uh, I don't well, know whether was, that's willful or otherwise. I don't know. I think that an awful lot of people stand outside, they get permission to go into the street and stand outside the front door of Downing Street. I don't know how much they get inside, do you? Well, I think there's quite a few people who do get inside from time to time, and there must have been more people than are now uh, being said to know about it that knew about it. That's the thing that I find well, puzzling. maybe. I don't know. I, I, it just remains the case to me. If these, if these, if these, people were out, are outraged enough about these events to leak them, why don't they leak them when they're actually going on? Well, that's a very good point. Because, I mean, a couple of other big stories that I would have liked to see more coverage on, for example, the PPE cases, which came out uh, sort of in the midst of the, the week where Boris was getting sort of tarred and feathered effectively when he, could, when, he, when he confessed to actually being at the party that only a day before he couldn't remember whether he was at. And Mike, you mustn't, call him, you mustn't call him Boris. Why? It, it, well, it's a, it's a stage name. It's, it's not even the name that he uses among his friends and family. It's designed to make him look cuddly. Uh, it, it's not. He, he's he is. He's either the prime minister or Johnson. But I think I think so now we, we, we in the media call him Boris. But he's not. But he's we, we, we now, get involved in this in this PR campaign to make him cuddly and that nice, amusing uh, comic fellow. And it's been very successful. I really do think we should not. Yeah, but has he not it. now tarnished even that? Well, maybe, but I, I still think we shouldn't fall for it. This well, you know, you know, I'm, I'm generally, you know, I'm, you know, I'm generally agreeable, Peter. But you know, whenever anybody tells me not to do something, my immediate reaction is to continue to do it. <laughs> so anyway, I shall well, refer. Yeah, I shall. I shall. I shall. It just sets my teeth on edge every no, right. time. Okay. Well, I'll do my best not to mention way. his name at all. How about that? Um, he wants you to do that. Yes. Maybe the fact that he wants you to do it might put you off doing it. It might do. Yes. Well, I'm sure yeah, that some, somehow surreptitiously you may have convinced me. Um, what about uh, the, the PPE scandal? Right. Two companies found uh, to have been unlawfully awarded contracts. That story's hardly been really done anything with. And then similarly, what we found out about the Chinese agent last week. 
even more bizarrely, has kind of gone away. I mean, this morning the Daily Mail are going on about a party that supposedly uh, Keir Starmer was at. You know, what's what's going on about China, for heaven's sake? Well, all, it, news news is all about choice, isn't it? And deciding what you think yeah. is important than what matters. And some people have decided some things matter more than us. What's fascinating about the China story is what turns out to be completely legal. And that, that it, as is so often the case, mm. that, that nobody's done anything wrong. And yet we have here, obviously, a, a, a person of considerable influence uh, channeling an awful lot of, uh, of, of good stuff in the direction of people she likes. And that's fine. Uh, and it comes out. I, one has to ask why it's come out now again. But it's it, it is fascinating how much you can how much you can lobby in this country, and, and nobody really disapproves of it. No, maybe we should get Sue Sue Gray onto it. And here's another thing which I'd be fascinated. <laughs> She's a bit busy at the moment. About Sue Gray, uh, the, the great the great inquisitor. Have you ever looked her up? It's absolutely extraordinary. You can find out nothing, whatever, about her. Nothing. Well, I found about something her. the other day that she was apparently she's apparently married to, or I think was married to, some kind of the country western singer, folk singer, country western singer from Northern yeah. Ireland. Yeah, but here's 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 a totally fascinating thing. We don't even know what her date of birth is. Really, it's not known. We don't know where she went to school. Right. And this is, a, I think, a joint permanent secretary in the cabinet office. Mm. Uh, and we have so so little knowledge about it. We don't even know what her actual age is. Right. And it, it, I'm I'm amazed that anybody can actually be so prominent in British government and and, uh, and, and officialdom mm. with, with uh, it, without without us knowing anything about them. In, in the old Soviet days, you never knew where the Soviet leaders really lived or, right. or what they were paid or anything about them at all. And that, but that was the Soviet Union. But it, this is this is supposedly a, a country with relatively open information, and here is a very prominent person about whom we know absolutely nothing. The BBC profile program, Radio Four, is often quite good on digging out stuff about people. You, you can look up their program on her, and the fascinating thing about it is they couldn't find anything out Amazing. about her. And do you I, think, I, I think this, this is in itself a story? Yes, I think you're right. And is this? Do you think part of the sort of new Google self-editing? Um, uh, ability where you can basically go onto the internet and say I don't wish this information to be available to the public so I wish it to be stricken from the internet which now apparently you can do like you know how people uh, can yeah. take out things they don't like like for example if you had once been convicted of shoplifting uh, you can take it out of your uh, of, of anything anyone can find about you I don't think this is I don't think anybody has ever known anything much about hmm. her actually but, but I just it just because I looked into it just before the weekend and I, I was just Breathless when I when, when I when I looked at the the, the details and found how how little was known about her. I thought you, normally you can find out quite a lot about public figures yes. from reference books and so forth, but there's nothing there at all. Huh. Interesting. Why so mysterious? Well, we'll have to jointly try and crack this one open. But the other thing that you the only thing you hear about her, and I hear it on many many news programs. Uh, over the course of the last few days and, and probably the last couple of weeks, is that, you know, oh, she's absolutely without stain. You know, she's very, very rigorous in the way that she looks into yeah. things. And you kind of go, well, we're supposed to just buy all this, are we? You're not hardly going to say that she's not rigorous, are you? You're hardly going to say that, you know, yeah. she's not impartial. But, I mean, you know as well as I do, once this so-called investigation is finally published, um, the Prime Minister will be exonerated, won't he? Well, she doesn't have the power to unexonerate him because she's a civil servant. He's subject in the end only to political discipline, so it's unlikely that she would. Though the other interesting thing about it, which hasn't come out through her own agency, but through Alistair Campbell's diaries, is that she apparently once 
was so worried about the state of the Labour Party that she urged Alistair Campbell to stand for Parliament, <laughs> which is a very interesting act. That instance. would have been very good. So this is we have the, the only source of this knowledge is Alistair Campbell himself. So she hasn't said it. But again, I just think that these the, a lot of these people in Whitehall are very, very interesting. I remember a long, long ago, you probably remember this, when Anthony Howard, the, the great editor of the New Statesman, mm. a very fine journalist, was appointed, I think, by the Times as their Whitehall correspondent. And immediately a, a, a memorandum went around Whitehall. All the mandarins of Whitehall said, don't talk to this man. <laughs> and, and the job was killed. Right. They didn't want anybody to know. And I, this is, this is, this is, it, it's, it's a part of our government which needs a lot more attention. Yes. Well, I was I just, quite shocked. I, I, couldn't, admit, I couldn't help raising it when you when, Yes. When you no, I was quite shocked also to see that, that Downing Street, as a department, employs 8,000 people. Is it that many? Yeah. I mean, it is much bigger than it looks. It really is. It's I mean, it must be like the target. Like something it's out of stupid. Doctor Who. You must go in well, there. I bet they're and, all you know, at home now. Well, of course they are. I mean, heaven forbid they're not allowed to go into work anymore because they can't seem to go in there without having a party. So they've been told well, not to e- do that. E- e- even when you put the cabinet office and everything else in, it would be struggle to get 8,000 people in there. I mean, it's quite, it's bigger than it looks, but it's, it, I, I'm surprised it's that big. Yes, well, they've obviously got a lot of other outbuildings, I suppose, that they, they, they use for various purposes. But stay with us, Peter. I want to talk to, to you about your, your amazingly interesting view about motorways, which you wrote about also at the weekend. Peter Hitchens is here, Mail on Sunday columnist. Why are you getting so worked up about the parties? That's a good question, isn't it? You might ask me that question. But the reason I'm worked up about it is because it proves that they never believed in the restrictions in the first place. And if they never believed in the restrictions in the first place, then they never really believed that COVID was that dangerous, right? Isn't that where we end up going? Surely. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We'll be taking loads of your calls coming up 0344-499-1000. Lots more uh, texts and tweets to to get in touch with as well. We're talking to Peter Hitchens. We were talking about uh, the extraordinary situation where people are more upset about parties than they are uh, about actually being told they can't have one. But it's all kind of connected in my world. But let's talk to Peter about something else he wrote about on the weekend, which was motorways. Because uh, I was fascinated, Peter, to see you writing that you never really liked motorways and you didn't think that they were really up to much. And I have to say, most of the motorways that you go on now are so ridiculously overcrowded. Um, this kind of conversation about smart motorways is a bit redundant anyway, isn't it? Well, yes, it is. And if you remember, perhaps the, the original Preston bypass in the, I think, late 1950s, which is the first motorway in this country, or you go back to the 30s, the the, uh, the, the great uh, freeways in um, that, that were opened in Pennsylvania and the German autobahns, and everybody thought, oh, well, this is wonderful, look at these great shining ribbons of concrete along which we could drive uh, in an uncrowded, speedy way. Uh, and it never turned out like that, did it? Because what motorways did was they attracted traffic. Yes. And particularly, as anybody who drives on the nose, they attract an awful lot of lorry traffic. Mm. Uh, and the result is that they're never like that. They, they're, they're, they're crowded and dangerous, uh, and it's very hard on motorways, in my experience, particularly British ones, uh, though even worse in Moscow, uh, to drive responsibly because you'll be b- bullied into tailgating uh, by other people very quickly if you if you if you try and leave a sensible gap between yourself and the car in front of someone, their car into it. it, it, it I find it nerve-wracking in the extreme and, 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 and 
the idea of there being no hard shoulder is terrifying, but are they in basically a good idea? Were, was the decision by major countries in the middle of the 20th century to build huge motor roads a sensible transport mm. policy? I don't think so. Here's a crucial fact that everybody should always remember. The friction between a steel wheel and steel rail is one thirty-third, approximately, of the friction between a rubber tire and a road. And therefore, anything carried by road is using immensely more energy uh, than anything traveling by rail, which mm. is one of the reasons why, where railways flourish, uh, they outdo uh, they outdo roads in environmental ways and also in, in, in terms of costs. So why did we switch so strongly from railway to road? Uh, the biggest place where this happened was the United States. Uh, and I, what I love about this is the way conservatives imagine that roads are the roads are conservative or right wing and free market. What Eisenhower did in the United States when he built the interstate highway system was he pretended it was a defense need and basically created a huge nationalized taxpayer finance road system, which probably put the privately owned railways out of business. Mm. Uh, so not, that's not conservative. Uh, at all, and the, the, but the in, in the United States you can see they've got vast amounts of space. That, that you could probably have railways and roads, and, and, and it wouldn't make any difference. But in our country, the, 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 the landscape is much tighter and more, more built up and, and, and more intimate, and the routes that you can take to get from one place to another are much more limited. So if you start having motorways, you tend to have to push the railways out of the way. Mm. Uh, and this was done in many cases. And again, when I was a child, you, if you wanted to travel the southwest of England, there were two major railway lines which went down uh, to Exeter and Plymouth and beyond. One of them was closed uh, madly because it's, it's needed all the time now, especially when the, the one which remains is washed away by the sea, which happens every few years. Yeah, down, down at Dawlish, Dawlish yeah. Uh, and and the, the, there are all kinds of other places where the, the, the connections between cities and towns were, were very good by rail. You could get practically anywhere in the country to anywhere by rail, particularly those, those medium-sized small market towns where so many people live. And all these had their railways ripped away in the motorway building frenzy of the, and the road building frenzy of the 1950s and 1960s. And it, it, it's a huge loss, it seems to me. I, I live in Oxford and there are several towns here, Oxford, substantial towns, Tame, Abingdon, Wantage, uh, Whitney, all of which were on the railways uh, and, and, until about 1963. And mm. now you, you can't get to them without a motor vehicle. Right. Uh, it's, it's given what we now know about the, about the huge environmental damage, the noise, the filth, uh, the pollution in general from, from motorways, and it's incessant. Did we, was this a good idea? But why do we never rethink it? And the other thing is, I get so tired of the Profumo scandal coming up on television again and again. It's always Christine Keeler's now. Well, okay, it was a scandal, though I don't quite know who was harmed by it. Mm. But nobody has heard of the fact that the transport minister of the Tory government of the 1960s, a man called Ernest Marbles, actually skipped the country uh, one night, taking half the contents of his flat in Belgravia on the night express to Paris. Uh, to, Ironically. To, to die, yeah, exactly. <laughs> to, do, to dodge a tax bill, right? Yeah, I don't. I mean, I read that in your column, and I'd never heard of it before. I'd never heard of it. No, people don't. But the other thing about this man, he was he was he was the chairman of a, of a major road building company, and it, it took an enormous amount of effort to get him to to, to cease to, to be connected with that company while he was transport minister. Mm. And this is a, it seems to me to be a much bigger scandal. The whole business of how it was that a very good railway system was ripped up, and not just ripped up, but the, it, it was very, very quickly destroyed. Yeah. After the railways were closed, the bridges were blown, the uh, land was sold on crucial parts of the land, so they could not be rebuilt. 
It's similar in a way to the current frenzy of destroying coal-fired power stations. Yes. It's not just that they're closed and put in mothballs, which would be a, a policy that you could say at least left some room mm. for doubt. They're blown up. Yeah. Again, again, you can watch film on the, on the internet and look for you know, YouTube of, of coal-fired power stations being blown up. They blow them up. And it was the same with the railways. After they were shut, uh, measures were taken to make it very difficult to reopen them. And so they, they've gone. And we, we became a country wholly dependent on roads, mm. both for passenger and freight transport. And I don't think it's been a good decision. I no. think we're paying for it. And when you build a new road, it's like, oh, great, we've got a bypass. And how long is it before that bypass itself becomes clogged? And you have to build a bypass mm. to the bypass, or you have to widen the bypass, or you have to make it into a smart bypass to try and <laughs> stop the jams. Every What roads do, and this is this is proven by research, is they, they draw in more traffic. And if you build new roads, you never solve the traffic problem. You simply move it further down the road and... and, and yes. A, a brief no, listen, you're absolutely right. Well, listen, we must talk about it again because there's a lot to be uh, in, in sort of explored, I think, in that particular argument about road versus rail, etc. My suspicion uh, is that the roads explosion was due to the fact that the government worked out that if they could charge everybody to drive a car and make them buy a licence and make them buy a road tax sticker, they could make £40 billion a year which I'm assured uh, is what they make. And they don't put any of it back into the roads, of course. Peter Hitchens, man on Sunday columnist, uh, with a great many thoughts on a great many things, not least uh, on Partygate, uh, but also on motorways. And uh, we may have to have a proper conversation about that uh, coming up soon. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good afternoon and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It is, of course, known as the home of common sense. I've known it now for a while as the world headquarters, actually, uh, of common sense. We're going to have more of it coming up in this hour because we're joined by Rebecca Ryan, campaign director for Defund the BBC. Nadine Dorries yesterday uh, was getting it all uh, over the place, uh, getting blasted by all sorts of people, including the likes of Gary Lineker uh, and also, of course, Dan Walker. Every single person employed by the BBC was out in force yesterday on social media telling us all... What a great thing the BBC is, 43 pence, and it's all fantastic. Only 43 pence a day. Well, the trouble is, if you don't pay them 43 pence a day, they come knocking on your door, they break it down, they drag you out, put you in court, and send you to jail for not buying a television licence, even if you don't want one. Now, people will say, well, if you don't want a licence, just don't get one. Yeah, but then they don't let you watch anything else because apparently that would be illegal, wouldn't it? So I'm afraid we are not buying it. As far as the BBC is concerned, it's too big. It's a bit like the NHS. It's overfunded. It's full of people that shouldn't be there who don't do a proper job. It's full of middle management. It's full of people earning six figures who shouldn't be earning six figures. It's full of people who, frankly, wouldn't get a job in any other broadcasting organisation if they tried. It's overstuffed... uh, with political appointees. It's overstuffed with too many people. They employed something like 25,000 people in the BBC. They've got 64 different local radio stations. It's absolutely ridiculous the amount of money that they spend on things. But we will be discussing what, if anything, Nadine Dorries has done wrong. Uh, Rebecca, I'm sure, uh, will agree with me that at the very least, what we should be doing is paring the BBC down. It doesn't need to be so big. It doesn't need to have fingers in so many pies. It does need, uh, however, to be made a little bit more efficient and to do more more things that the public want it to do. There is no reason, for example, why the BBC should put on Strictly, is there? Why would you? Let ITV do Dancing on Ice. That's the kind of show they do. Why on earth are we paying bucket loads of money to some half-baked celebrities and a few other people uh, to dance around for hours on end uh, for our supposed enjoyment? 
without being asked. We are being told we have to pay for it. Well, that's not the way it works. You don't have to pay for talk radio. You don't have to pay for the home of common sense. We give it to you for free. Why? Because it's called democratic commercialism. And we are also the people that listen to what you have to say. We are not a cabal of lefties who live in Putney, who all think we should have stayed in the European Union. That's what they are. 0344 499 1000 is the number. We'll also talk to Russell Quirk coming up because apparently millions of people in lockdown have become alcoholics. And I'm not just talking about the people working in Downing Street either. 0344 499 1000 is the number. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So Boris Johnson has already said that over the course of the next few weeks, he's going to come up with some what he calls user-friendly policies to try and win back the uh, sort of faith of the good voting public of this country. But the BBC licence fee, as already it has been announced, is going to be frozen for two years to help ease the cost of living a crisis. It's not going to be anywhere near as popular as actually taking the 20% subsidy, the green subsidy, off energy bills, which they should also do. But Nadine Dorries came out yesterday. Uh, she's the Culture Secretary, of course, and said the days of the elderly being threatened with prison sentences and bailiffs knocking on doors are over. The time has now come to discuss and debate new ways of funding, supporting and selling great British content. I think she's absolutely right. Why wouldn't you agree with that? Let's talk to Rebecca Ryan. Rebecca, very good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Mike. How are you? Very well indeed. Is this the beginning of something uh, which we want to see? Is it the beginning of the government finally working out that actually people are fed up paying the licence fee and we need to find a proper alternative? Absolutely. I mean, I think there's a, you know, you could say that this is a bit of a dead cat, you know, trying to be a bit of a distraction from Boris Johnson's other issues in number 10. But I think what we need to do now is make absolutely clear that the public see this as an extremely popular move. Um, we'll, we'll take the fact that this commitment from the Dean Dorries and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll hold them to it. So, you know, not only has she said that she's going to freeze the licence fee, um, but also that there's going to be a, a gradual wind down over the remainder of the charter. And this will be the last charter. This will be the last BBC licence fee. So in 2007, uh, 2027, sorry, um, there will not be another licence fee. And that's what we've said from the beginning, actually, is that they're not going to suddenly cut off money to the BBC. There has to be a gradual crank, you know, mm. wind down. Um, and that looks like that's exactly what they're committing to doing. So it's a very welcome decision. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that was really irritating me yesterday was all the people who work for the BBC, i.e. are on the payroll of the BBC and they do rather well out of it, putting out these ridiculous tweets about how brilliant it all is, you know. And one of the more, more sort of um, famous ones was the one that said, this is what we bring you from the BBC. And it's the iPlayer, BBC One, BBC Two, BBC News, BBC Parliament, BBC World Service, BBC Three, which they're meant to have shut down, BBC Services, don't know what that is, radios one, two, three, one extra, four, six, um, the Asian Network, Alba, four, Scotland, BCB, I mean, you know, it just goes on and on and on. You're going, well, we don't need all this stuff. And surely to goodness, you ought to be able to pick and choose which of the services you wish to pay for. Absolutely. I mean, 43p per day might sound like value for money if it's something you want. But the thing right. is, most people don't actually want it anymore. Mm. You know, and if they did want it, you know, they'd be happy to pay it with a subscription fee. So, you know, the main issue you've got here is you, you can actually, you know, stop paying the, the BBC if you switch completely to on demand, which, you know, 550 households per day are currently doing. Yeah. And you see, you know, 1.6 million pensioners didn't take out a license fee. You know, the British public are really, really, you know, they've had it to 
to the rafters with the BBC mm. and its, uh, you know, its campaigning agenda. Um, so we're seeing that people are already, you know, switching off from the BBC. But the point is, there are people who like to watch live sport, for example, yeah. or other live broadcast TV, and they don't want to watch it on the BBC. They don't want to pay the BBC any money, but they're forced by law to do so. And so, you know, 43p per day isn't value for money if they're only watching channels that are all right. funded by advertising. Well, absolutely. Particularly if you're forced to pay that licence fee, even though you don't want to watch the BBC, because if you want to watch ITV or you want to watch Channel 5, uh, or any of the other channels, say on Freeview, you know, you have to still buy a license, and that's can't, that can't be right, can it? Exactly, and then this is what people are most cross about. Because, like I say, you can currently get rid of your TV license if you don't watch any live broadcast TV. Yeah. But you know, it's this, this, this sort of small group of people who are sort of trapped having to pay the BBC whilst you know not being able to therefore watch any of the programs that they want to watch on other live broadcast channels and these people are being threatened um you know on their doorstep they're being coerced they're being confused by the bbc about what they can and can't watch uh -huh. and the bbc is very deceptive about the fact you, you don't need a tv license um if you don't watch any live broadcast tv so there's a real sort of campaign of, of fear yeah. against the british public you know most vulnerable people who are you know being forced to pay this amount which you know the likes of gary lineker might say oh well 43p a day well that's fine for him isn't it when he's earning you know 1.35 million well also of course he's going to defend it he said I mean, <laughs> his tweet yesterday that yes the bbc brings you the best in news well i'm sorry i've got news for you gary only six percent of the population of this country actually trust the bbc news he then says we bring you the best in sport well no you don't because they don't have any live football apart from the fa cup which is uh, absolute rubbish uh, then they don't really even bring you most of the six nations they don't bring you most of the cricket uh, they've got a bit of golf very very small amount uh, they don't seem to do horse racing anymore they've lost the grand prix you know how is that the best of sport in anybody's book yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're in a complete delusional bubble, aren't they? You see sort of they've obviously been sent this tweet that they've all got to copy and paste and put out on their timelines. Yes. Um, saying, you know, 43p isn't it fabulous value for money? And they couldn't even, you know, that's a graphic that's been knocking around for a good few years now. They couldn't even put together something more uh, persuasive than that. But at the end of the day, it comes down to the fact that 43p per day is not value for money if it's something that you don't want. You know, um, people can buy other things. And it's, it's very arrogant of them to think that 43p a day is, is, you know, is a small amount of money. There's people who are living really on the breadline yeah. who don't want to part with 43p a day. Also, uh, without wishing to single out June Sarpong, uh, she's the head of diversity at the BBC. She gets paid 267,000 quid a year for a three-day week. Mm. Huh? Absolutely. You know, exactly. I mean, nice work and if you can get it. I dare say she was tweeting out yesterday about how great it is as well. Absolutely. And you've got Dan Walker, who spends £600 a week on his taxis to and from work. And uh, I'm sure well, he walk? That's his name. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's, the one, he's another one that said that we'd all be a lot poorer if there was no BBC, to which I pointed out, well, you'd be about 300000 quid a year poorer because that's how much they pay him. You know? Exactly. It's exactly. like some kind of big joke, isn't it, that everybody's in on, yeah. apart from anyone who's not thought to be the right kind of person, because you can't get a job at the BBC. I remember from even way back as a, as a, as a young journalist trying to get a job, they only interview people who've got degrees, you know? And they're now suddenly it's... turning around and saying, oh, well, maybe we should actually um, perhaps try and recruit a few working class people. Oh, really? Well, that's a good idea. Well done. You know, diversity <laughs> in the BBC doesn't mean what colour your skin is. It means what class you're from. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, this is the thing is the BBC is going to struggle to uh, 
to deliver anything like real diversity and to deliver on its charter obligation, which is to represent all parts of the UK. They clearly don't represent uh, the UK as they're supposed to. You know, two thirds of the country in poll after poll show that they want to get rid of the license fee. You know, and if, if the other third, you know, or even some of those who want to get rid of the license fee, if they want to carry on paying the subscription, then, then you know, great, carry on. Yeah. But um, forcing people with this sort of fear of imprisonment and, you know, bullying people on their doorstep yes. is it's really outrageous. And most of the people, my understanding is, that actually get prosecuted and, and eventually sent to prison are women, aren't they? Absolutely. 74% of prosecutions are against women. And that's because the way they collect the licence fee, uh, they enforce the licence mm. fee, is really discriminatory because the licence fee is attached to your property, not to a person. So that means whoever answers the door will get prosecuted and right. you know women as we know are far more likely to be at home they're like more likely to be there with their kids or you know working part-time because they're picking their kids up from after school that's just yeah. a fact of life um and so 74 percent of prosecutions are against women i mean that's absolutely outrageous it really is and what about the situation with um somebody knocking at your door because mm. i don't think you have to answer it do you no, you don't have to let them in. You've got the full rights to be able to, to record them as well. And we would we would recommend that you do record them because we have heard reports of uh, these enforcement officers uh, not giving 100% accurate information. So you do not uh, have to have a license just to own the TV. Mm. They would have to actually catch you in the act of watching live broadcast TV. Um, and if you, you know, if you don't let them into your house, you don't have to have the stress of having, you know, that confrontation with them. And if 74, as we've seen, 74 percent of prosecutions are against women, what women on their own would want to let a sort of burly man well, exactly. into their house? Yeah, I think that's a very dangerous way to behave. And in fact, you mm. know, it's a ludicrous concept, if you think about it, in the way that they used to do it, where they used to drive mm. around with those TV detective vans with that weird-looking hanger on the top that went round and round and round, <laughs> which actually didn't do anything. But they tried to make people worry that actually they could tell when you were watching TV. Yeah. Well, this is the thing. I mean, you know, you, you, you can watch all sorts of different things on your TV without having a TV license. And, you know, how would they actually prove what you're watching and what time? You know, we've got, we've got smart TVs now. We're living in the age of different apps and what have you. So, for example, if you've got the ITV Hub app on your TV, the vast majority of the content on there is on demand. But right. there is one button on there, which is for live TV. So how are they going to prove that you've been watching live TV because of the fact that you've got the ITV uh, Hub app on your smart uh, TV? They, they simply can't unless they catch you in the act. It's completely unpleasable. So, you know, this is why we need to see an end to the TV licence. And, uh, you know, Nadine Dorries is absolutely right to commit to that. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at um, what's on BBC Two tonight, right? Mastermind at 7.30. I mean, that's a bit old, isn't it? I mean, I know it's a new version of Mastermind. Then they've got University Challenge at 8.30. I mean, haven't they come up with a new idea for a while, have they? It is like a step back in the past, isn't it? I mean, nobody... I mean, new, and then news, night, news Night at 10.30, which, I mean, you might as well just put up an advert for the Labour Party, <laughs> you know. Um, unbe it's unbelievable, isn't it? Um, and, and uh, you know, on BBC One, let's see what they've got. Kelvin's Big Farming Adventure. That's not much of a rip-off of what Jeremy Clarkson does on Amazon, is it? Uh, at all. Exactly. Uh, Who mm. do you think you are? Which is one of those old shows that they've been doing for years and years and years. EastEnders, which they should have killed off a long time ago. Um, the One Show, Panorama. I mean, I, can't, I literally can't remember the last time I actually bothered watching the BBC at all. 
No, and I think the vast majority of people just don't watch live TV. And we got look a bit, but one of the positive things to come out of uh, COVID actually is that people were forced to discover how to, you know, how to get Netflix onto their TV and Amazon Prime and all these different places. And, and now that you know people realise the selection and control you have when you're watching on demand TV, sort of stepping back into live broadcast TV just feels like an absolute blast from the past. It does. And what about this BritBox? That's not just the BBC, is it? That's a few other uh, uh, organisations, broadcast organisations as well, selling sort of British programmes mm. back to you. And the BBC have already told us that we've paid for it. But then if you want BritBox, you have to pay for that as well. Yeah, it is pretty outrageous because you're, you're being forced to pay twice. So you get to I mean, pay could... twice for Call the Midwife if you want. <laughs> exactly. So you're paying £5 a month to watch exactly the same content that you've already <laughs> paid for with your licence fee, but then you don't have to pay for a licence because it's on demand. Mm. So, you know, swings and roundabouts, but yeah, it's a it's a money for all. Yeah, people, I mean, my, my other pet peeve is the radio business, right? Because in parts of the country, you cannot run a commercial radio station simply no. because you're squeezed out of it by the BBC. In Scotland, for example, BBC Scotland is massive. They employ everybody, right? So if you're trying to start, and I speak from experience here, you're trying to start up a commercial radio station, you can't compete with the kind of money they pay people. So you basically can't get any decent presenters. Down in the south, it's got we've got BBC Surrey. BBC Sussex, BBC Kent, three separate stations, all operating out of different hubs, all doing completely different shows. It's a nonsense. There's 64 local radio stations, right? We don't need any of them. No, exactly. And that's a big, that's a really insulting thing about that graphic that they put out is a sort of huge list of all these local radio stations. And, you know, on the back of that is all of these commercial stations that have gone out of business, as you say. Yeah. It's the same thing with the BBC News uh, platform as well. The amount of pressure that they put on uh, traditional news outlets um, by, by putting together the, the news website. And they say, oh, well, look, this is fabulous. Look at what we've done. It's like, well, you, you put all of the competition out. It's a complete racket, like you say. And, you know, it, so that certainly doesn't represent value for money. Yeah, I mean, like BBC Alba, when old Ian Blackford put, switches that on in Sky, the, the, the audience doubles, you know. <laughs> <laughs> There's no need for it, right? So, what, so, what, so what can you tell us, uh, Rebecca? Are you going to be having a meeting with Nadine Dorries anytime soon? Well, it'd be fabulous to sit down with me. We're more than open to that. And yeah, certainly um, put together a perspective from our supporters, what, what they think and how we'd like to move forward. Yeah. But uh, we'd just really like to reiterate that her decision um, to look in the midterm review for the funding model for the rest of this charter is really, really positive. It's what we've been calling for um, and that it should be the final one for the license mm. fee. I mean, I know that people are impatient to see an end to it, um, but it was never going to be a sudden cutoff. I think that would be an unrealistic expectation. So we're, we're very happy. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm interested. We've got the Beijing Olympics coming up soon. They're probably sending more people as usual than the, the actual Team GB. That's what normally happens. <laughs> <laughs> it's unbelievable. Anyway, it's good to talk to you. Uh, we'll keep up the pressure, Rebecca. If you need anything from us, please just ask because we will be very happy to let you know. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.